I'm Jen Taylor Skinner, and this is The Electorette. On this episode, I talk with Deborah Lee James about her new book, Aim High. Isn't that nice? Deborah Lee James, you might be familiar with her name and her work from the Obama administration. You see, Deborah Lee James was confirmed as the 23rd Secretary of the Air Force in 2013, and she was only the second woman in history to lead a U.S. military service. In this position, Deborah led a force of over 660,000 people and managed a budget of over $100 billion. And ask her what that was like, what it was like for her to get a call to work for President Obama. But this didn't just come out of the blue for Deborah Lee James. She had an entire lifetime of challenges and successes and failures and pivots and transformations, and she fought her way to the top. Then she wrote a book about it. In her new book titled Aim High, Deborah Lee James talks about how she dealt with the pressure and how she thrived in these male-dominated fields. I had so many questions for her. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Deborah Lee James. Deborah Lee James, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much, Jennifer. Glad to be here. I'm so excited to talk to you. You have a lot of good advice in your book, Aim High. And I want to start with how you started the book, how you opened the book with your position as Secretary of the Air Force. And I want to talk about that because this is an opportunity and a call that most people listening will never get. So you get a call to work for President Obama. That's right. What is that like? What does that feel like? And how does that work exactly? Well, it just was a bolt out of the blue. And to be honest, when I received a call to actually interview for the position of Secretary of the Air Force, among several other candidates, my immediate reaction was, well, this will go nowhere, but I will play it out um, as far as I can play it because you just never know and you just never know who you might meet or where other opportunities might present. But I literally considered myself to be the darkest of the darkest horse candidates. And to be clear, I actually did not receive a call from the president himself. I received a call from White House personnel, from someone who had been in my larger network for years, someone who I had known actually from the 1990s when I served in the Clinton administration. Uh, So this is what launched me into the process, and I began a series of interviews. And when I kept going and going and kept getting called back to yet higher level personnel within the Pentagon, I knew it was getting somewhat serious. But again, when I got the final call, which was from that same White House personnel official offering me the job, I just about fell off my seat. It literally was astounding to me. Wow. So you were leaving the private sector to take this position. Was there any chance that you would have said no? There absolutely was a chance that I would have said no. As a matter of fact, after I received the call offering me the job, I was so startled that I spent the next couple of weeks trying to figure out how I was going to talk myself back from this precipice because I had some fears, I had trepidation, I was worried about taking a big pay cut, I was worried about getting back into a political environment. I had been in one before, I knew what it was like, but the level of politics and the level of divisiveness had become extreme in my opinion and I wasn't at all sure that I wanted to uh, get back into that. So I had a variety of fears and I had to work my way through them. Luckily, two weeks later, um, I did and I accepted and never looked back since and am very feel very blessed that I had this opportunity to serve. So when you get a call like that, 
How do you prepare for your first day of work? Well, the way I prepared to become Secretary of the Air Force was to, first of all, sort of review the key duties of the office, to also look at the key issues of the day that a Secretary of the Air Force would need to deal with and be familiar with and make decisions about. That included the top personnel issues affecting the Air Force. So that another way of saying that is the recruiting and the retention of top talent, which is something that every CEO across the country is thinking about. And um, I needed to think about that too. It meant also how we were going to provide appropriate training, professional development for those people. It involved matters of equipping. So once we get the people in the front door, they have to have the proper equipment to do their jobs of today. But it also means technology investments so that we could stay one, two, three steps ahead of our opposition, which are the threats around the world, the countries and the groups that threaten American interests. So it was technology investments for the future. I also became ultimately the top spokesman. That's the other thing that the CEO of a company or the Secretary of the Air Force does. So I was representing our issues to the Congress, to the American people. I was representing our issues to the White House and also within the halls of the Pentagon vis-a-vis -vis the Navy and, and the Army. So all of these matters are things that I needed to come up to speed about and in some cases refresh because I, I have been a national security professional both in government and in the private sector for the entirety of my career. So many of these things were not brand new, but time had passed and I needed to refresh and make sure that my my own perspectives and my own knowledge was up to speed. So did you, like a lot of women have, especially as they rise in their own profession, did you suffer from imposter syndrome at all? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, there have been many times throughout my 37 years of my working life in which I've been afraid in which I felt in some way not qualified, where I had a lack of confidence and one of the ways that I overcame those feelings was pushing myself, number one. And number two was literally leveraging imposter syndrome, but I think in a positive way, because in so doing, I was able to force myself to demonstrate that confidence, even if I wasn't really feeling it on the inside. I've learned over time, and there's a lot of data to back this up, that uh, women in general uh, lack confidence, whereas men don't necessarily lack that same level of confidence. For example, any time that you're applying for a new job, and let's say there's five key criteria or five key experiences that the employer wants to see that you have had, if a woman has had four out of five, frequently she'll go into the interview and talk about the one thing she can't do before she brings up the fact that she's had great experience in the other four. A man will do it the exact opposite. And I learned over time that I needed to do it just like men do it because that's a better way to promote yourself. So I'm not suggesting that anyone ever lie about experience or lack thereof, but rather it's very important to play to your strengths, not to play to your own weaknesses. Yes. You know, I was just talking to someone the other day about that, about women running for office. They suffer from this confidence gap. You know, a, a man will go in, you know, after a loss and will run right again. They'll run for office again. And women, they don't often get back into the game. So yeah, that's a really important lesson. That's right. Well, an another lesson learned for me is 
always have a plan A, whatever your plan A might be, you need to have one because if you don't have any sort of a plan, whether you're a brand new young person coming out of school or whether you're a mid-career professional or whether you're someone who's coming perhaps toward the end of your working life, you nonetheless have to have some notion of what you want to do over the next one, two, or five years. At least in my opinion, that's important. If you don't, you run the risk of simply drifting. And then it's important to take steps to try to achieve that plan. But thirdly, it's very, very important, prepare to zigzag. In other words, prepare to pivot to what could become a plan B, because your plan A may or may not work out. If it works out, fantastic. But sometimes it may work out and you reach your goal and you discover that this is not really floating my boat after all. This is not what I thought it would be. This is not giving me happiness and fulfillment. So that's a reason to pivot to something new. Or as happened to me on a couple of occasions in my life, I simply don't achieve my plan A. I fall flat on my face. I have a failure. Something happens in life. And so you're forced to pivot. But guess what? In so doing, you may discover something which is even more fulfilling, which is even more interesting to you, which is better in the plan B sense than plan A could have ever been. So I also say, prepare to pivot be agile, and you don't know what you will find fascinating or interesting or purposeful until you try it. One door may close, but I guarantee another door always opens. So you talk about that. And I think in chapter two, you talk about having a plan and then being prepared to zigzag. So you had actually prepared for something completely different than what you actually ended up doing. You wanted to be a diplomat and you studied for that and you did internships and you kind of focused on that. But what happened? You didn't actually become a diplomat. What happened? Well, I did everything that I thought I could possibly do as a young person involving, you know, going to the right schools, taking the top courses, getting a top grades. I had internships with the State Department. I lived in a abroad and became proficient in a foreign language. I thought I had everything going my way. But when I left school and moved to Washington and applied to the State Department, for whatever set of reasons, I was not selected. And I remember as a 22 or 23-year-old young person who had just spent the last seven or eight years of my life preparing for this singular dream, I remember remember crashing, literally crashing and going to bed for days in sort of this depression and a lot of crying and almost becoming paralyzed, not knowing what to do. I felt like my life was flashing in front of my face and that I was washed up at the tender age of 22. Now, of course, this wasn't true. And eventually I got out of bed on the fifth or sixth day, something like that. It was the better part of a week and needed to find a job. So I started interviewing elsewhere and simply sending my resume to other parts of the government because I I really did want to do policy work in the government. And I was offered a job, only one offer did I receive, and it was from the Department of the Army. Now, back in those days, I didn't know anything about the military. I didn't particularly care about the military. I'd had no exposure as a young person to the military. And so the whole thing sounded rather foreign to me. And it was certainly not my ambition or my dream. But with that said, it was a job and it was a time when I needed a job. So I took it on and I did my level best to excel, to get to know the people, to understand the issues. And remarkably for me, after a few months, 
these fantastic things, positive things started happening. Number one, I discovered that the meat of what I was working on, the issues that I was dealing with, they were really important issues and I was finding them to be very, very interesting. Never had thought about it before, but it turned out to be a really important and interesting area, every bit as much as I'm sure the State Department and the diplomatic work would have been. Number two, I got lucky and fell in with a terrific group of people, some of whom I'm still in touch with to this day. And they really took me under their wing as a junior colleague. I learned from them. There was camaraderie. It was a fantastic sense of teamwork. And number three, I had a wonderful first boss who I look back now and consider to be my first great mentor in life, who not only gave me advice and feedback on my performance, but very important also counseled me and opened some doors and exposed me to some things that I otherwise would not have had the opportunity to see. So the combination of those three things, ultimately feeling that interest and purpose in this new area, being part of a fantastic team, and number three, having a, a great boss, a mentor, someone who could help me and lead me into the future. This turned out to be the magic combination for me. And after that, I really never thought too much about the State Department again. That first failure the State Department story led me, after that door closed, it led me to a new open door. I walked through it. And 35 years later, I had risen to become the Secretary of the Air Force, the second woman in history to do it. And so I look back on that now, and I'm so grateful for that first failure. Because had I entered the State Department, I can't imagine that my professional life would have been more fulfilling and more purposeful than the one I've had. Yeah, well, I love that story. And, you know, and I want to explore it a little bit more. And I'm glad you brought up mentorship, too, because I want to talk about that next. But I love this story because we, we've all had that. I've had that myself. We spent all of our lives, you know, especially those of us who are kind of type A, kind of preparing for one path. And when that doesn't happen, you know, it feels like we can't recover. So you mourn for a while. But then even after you got the job, did you still mourn the path that you thought that you were going to take? I, I mourned it for a while. I did mourn it for a while, but not too long. Because as I said, after a few months when I really started to get into the swing of things at the Army and was enjoying my work and feeling like I was making a contribution within this team, and then one thing led to the next and the next and the next. I had a position uh, as an intern in the White House on the National Security Council staff. I eventually left the Army completely and went to the House Armed Services Committee, which is one of the four committees in Congress that reviews and approves the defense budget and defense policy. And from there, at the age of 34, I went to the Pentagon and became an assistant secretary of defense. So I had sort of a meteoric rise through the defense establishment in the government during those years. So I was feeling on top of the world and what could ever go wrong at that point, or so I thought. But of course, things did go wrong in life. But to answer your question, I really didn't look back on the diplomatic aspect of things. I was very, very happy now in defense. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I want to talk about your your mentor because you have an entire chapter in your book about that. And I have to say, I, I hadn't actually thought about this before, but when I was reading that chapter, I was thinking, you know what? I've never truly had a mentor, especially on a long-term basis. 
And then I realized that, you know, I'm probably not alone in that. I was looking up some of the numbers. I read a survey that said that 63% of women that they surveyed said that they had never had a mentor. But there's some reasons behind that. I mean, to have a mentor, you have to have somebody who's risen to a certain level of leadership, right? And in lots of male dominated environments like the military or like technology, in my case, it's hard to find women to mentor you. So I just want to know, you know, how did you go about that, especially in the military and in these kind of male dominated industries that you were in? Well, first of all, I will tell you that the majority of my mentors in life have been men, although I have had a couple of women that I looked up to and counseled with who I would also consider a mentor. But for the most part, they've been men. I think you have to kind of try to work with what your industry or what your career field has. And when, you know, in my case, the national security career field, it was mostly men. And so that I think explains why I had mostly male mentors. The second thing I would tell you is nowadays, there are many more formal programs, at least there are in large organizations like the Air Force or like a large private sector firm, and they have formal programs of mentorship. But at least while I was coming up through the ranks, and I think in many mid-tier and smaller companies, and even in large companies, if you're not in that program, then you don't necessarily have a formal mentor. I never had a formal mentor in a program, but rather I have people that I can trace throughout my professional life who I know have been so important to me and so valuable because of the time that they spent with me, the connections that they helped me make, uh, perhaps a referral on, a, on the next job opportunity, all of these people I consider to be mentors. So my advice on this is if you've got a mentorship program in your company, go for it. Seek it out. See if you can be included in it. And if it doesn't exist in your company or in your government agency, go on the offense and look for one to work with on an informal basis. For me, a good mentor candidate is anyone who is in your area, but obviously more advanced than you are in their career. So it tends to be someone older, doesn't have to be, but tends to be and who is willing to sit with you upon occasion, talk about issues that you're facing, talk about where you would like to go in your career, and who would be willing to not only give you advice, but also to make some connections, some referrals, some openings for you. The people who have done this for me have been enormously helpful. And now I try to give that back to others as well as part of what I do as a regular basis in my in my life. The final point I'll make here is this doesn't have to be too hard. It can be as easy as asking someone to have a cup of coffee with you at their convenience. Again, pick a candidate like I described, someone who's more advanced in the same career field that you're interested in and who you at least judge to be open and willing to tell their story. So approach them and ask to have a cup of coffee sometime at their convenience and to simply tell their story, their career story. I find that 95% of all people love to talk about themselves, especially men, by the way, and um, they're more than willing to give you a half an hour uh, to talk about how they came up through the ranks. You know, actually, now that I think of it, I think it was the lean in survey that they did where half of the male respondents, the male managers said that it was on their end where they were reluctant to meet with a woman as a mentor outside of work in a mentorship relationship. So I don't know, it's just really tricky. And I think we should acknowledge that. 
That is an unfortunate, there are many positive things that have come out of the Me Too movement, but the law of unintended consequences perhaps is that there is this very persuasive data to suggest that men are now worried about mentoring women. So that's a negative. What I advise men, because I've been asked this on numerous occasions as well, is number one, snap out of it. And number two, if you're a senior leader in a company or a government organization, part of your role is to develop the next generation of talent. And that 50% of that talent needs to increasingly be women. So if you're worried about going out for drinks at night, then don't take a man out for drinks and don't do it for a woman. If you're worried about certain aspects of how you would mentor, simply treat men and women alike. But for heaven's sakes, don't walk away from the necessity of mentoring your top female talent. You you need to hang in there. You need to do it. Find a way to get it done. Yeah. You know, I have to say that I was working long before Me Too, and I think those dynamics were in place then, right? I think just generally, it's hard to cross that gender line for a mentorship relationship. And then also, I'll add the few women that I did have who were in a position of kind of being mentors for me. One of the things that I really needed for them to do was to acknowledge the gender dynamics in our culture. You know, and I never really had that. So even the women who were kind of at managerial or executive levels, they don't actually talk about the dynamics that we're all working in. And I, I, that would have been really, really helpful for me, for someone hired to me to acknowledge what we were all dealing with. Well, I think that's unfortunate. And I would like to think over time that is going to be changing believe it's a generational thing. So women of my generation or women who are even older than me and who have somehow beaten the odds and reached the top of their professions, they tend to feel like, well, I reached the top of my profession by just good old fashioned hard work and sacrifice. And I didn't have this sort of flexibility or I didn't have this working in my favor. So that's the way other women need to do it as well. I think that's a short-sighted way of looking at it. I think each generation of women has stood on the shoulders and benefited, I know I did, from the group that paved the way before me. And I think it's incumbent upon all of us, no matter what our age or generation, is to figure out how we're going to bring that next generation of talent up behind us. So nowadays, different aspects are absolutely expected in the workplace environment. And any organization that doesn't provide a certain level of benefits and flexibility in working arrangements, time off, etc. Anybody who isn't willing to do these sorts of things is absolutely going to lose the talent war. And I come back to, I don't know of any group, any organization nowadays that isn't worried about where are we going to get the qualified people to be able to staff up and do our work. So if you miss the boat on this and if you don't play to the fact that 50% of the college graduates, 50% of the talent in this country is female, then you're going to be missing the boat big time. Thank you. 
one of the other chapters that I love, it's titled Learn, Evolve and Reinvent. And the reason I love this chapter is because when we often think about reaching new goals, we get stuck in thinking that we have to work within this defined rigid framework of who we've always been. You know, reinvention is not a part of that work. And I don't mean just getting better at the work you've always done, but I mean a complete reinvention of yourself to take on something completely new. And I think this is especially true for women. And this could be due to the confidence gap that we talked about earlier. You know, and what I mean is, for example, just because you've been a teacher your whole life or a bartender or let's say a stay-at-home mom, that doesn't mean that you can't pivot to become a politician or a writer or, you know, whatever. So my question for you is, at what point in your life did you realize that you could just reinvent yourself, just move in a completely different direction? Well, the chapter Learn, Evolve, and Reinvent, of course, captures years of my life. And it's easy in retrospect to look back on these periods and reflect upon what you learned. But when you're in the moment, it's a lot harder to see it. So there certainly wasn't a day, you know, it wasn't Thursday that I was X and then boom, Friday, I've reinvented myself and now I'm Y. It, it certainly wasn't like that. It was a gradual experience that I did work on intentionally. So what I mean by that is particularly when I left the government after 17 years of government service and having worked my way up to a top-level job in the Defense Department. I started out as someone who really knew nothing about the national security issues to someone 17 years later who was considered quite expert on these matters. And now I'm going into the private sector where once again, I don't have an MBA, I don't have the training. So how does one chart and navigate a course in this brand new world. And this is where I come back to learn, evolve, and ultimately be open to reinvention. So it is a question of how does one do that? And there's no single answer, but it involves things like take extra courses. And I don't mean necessarily take off two years of your life from work and go back for an MBA. That's terrific if you can do it. Most people can't do it in mid-career, but look for ways to get additional learning, either through short courses, if you can do a course at night, that's another way of doing it. If you're in a larger company, they have a variety of training programs where you can learn different aspects of the business. So I started out, for example, in business development and learned capture management and sales and that end of the business and eventually evolved over into actually leading and managing a segment of the business, the so-called P&L world. Communications is a essential on this. Technical capability may be essential depending on what line of work that you're in. And even if you don't have technical capability, in my case, I didn't. I became an expert translator of what can these technical capabilities do for you, the client, in your working environment. And so to be able to do that in a clear, concise, and persuasive way became sort of the key talent that I was able to bring to the table. Lastly, I was able to volunteer. I did volunteer and was accepted on a couple of rotational assignments, which in part were additional duties for me so that I could sort of bulk myself up in areas where I was not so strong. And finally, once again, I kind of got lucky with a good boss who took a chance on me and who gave me my first P&L assignment 
If you do well in that, chances are it'll lead to the next thing. So what I've just described here is probably a five-year period of my life from when I left the government, had my first experience in the private sector before I ultimately got that first P&L assignment. And by that time, there was still more learning and evolution to occur, but I felt like I had really reinvented myself into a business person. Yeah, you know, that story resonates so much with me because I didn't have a background in technology before I went in that direction and I needed to reinvent myself and, and learn technology. I didn't see the same confidence, I think, and a lot of women to be able to do that, women who worked around me versus men, right? Again, back to that whole confidence gap thing. But I guess my question is, and I've always wanted to ask someone at, at your level of experience, your level of success, did you encounter any male resentment or sabotage or anything like that? I mean, obviously you did working in these environments, especially considering the level that you rose to. And, and if so, how did you deal with it? Well, I feel like I'm pretty expert in being a different type of professional than most of the professionals sitting around the table at any given table that I have been at in my life. So what I mean by this is for quite a few number of years, I was the youngest person at a table with much more senior military and civilian individuals who were much more expert on everything than I was. So that is the diversity of, I'll say, youth as well as the diversity of experience, meaning I just didn't have it at that time, yet I had to somehow hold my own. I have frequently been the only or among the very few women at the table in a male environment. And so the question is, how do you get your voice heard? How do you not get talked over? And once again, that's a learned set of skills as well. I have been a liberal arts major who ultimately has been on top of a large company technical environment. In my former company, SAIC, I was the, the president of a sector there. And then, of course, as Secretary of the Air Force, which is probably the most technical of our military services, I was the equivalent of the CEO, and yet I don't have a technical background. So in each of those instances, I was able to play to my strengths within a team environment and to recognize that I didn't know everything. There was a lot that I had to learn, but that I was very good at certain things, and I was going to play to those strengths and become indispensable while at the same time trying to learn more and broaden my own portfolio. So what I mean by that is in my early career, I had youth and I didn't know a lot about national security. In fact, I didn't know anything in the beginning. But my strengths were I was an excellent listener, I was a good researcher, and a good writer. And so I would be the one in the meeting who would be keeping track of who was saying what and ultimately would write up the report. And I became a valued member of the team in those early days for those particular skills. So I played to my strengths. When I became Secretary of the Air Force, again, I was the second woman in history. And furthermore, I had never served in uniform. So I've always been a civilian in the national security arena. So I didn't have those two things, but I played to my strengths. My strengths at that point were I'd had experience on Capitol Hill, which is essential for our budget. I had experience in the business world. We rely hugely upon the world of the private sector to create, supply us with the equipment and many of the services that we depend upon in the Pentagon. I had good communication skills, which was important when I was dealing with crises and the press and on the hot seat for one issue or another. And I had been in the Pentagon before, so I knew the intricacies of how things got done or how they got blocked. So 
once again, I've never had everything. I think no one ever has anything when they go into a new stretch type of a role. But what we need to all do is we need to play to our strengths and recognize that we're not alone, that we have a team to rely upon and we need to be good listeners and we've got to leverage and inspire that team in order to get things done. Because after all, that is what any of us, whether we're individual contributors or whether we are leaders, we are charged to get things done for our organizations. So you said something that I don't want to overlook because I think it's really important to moving up in whatever field you're in or whatever you field you want to be in. And that's about making yourself indispensable. You know, and that's a tool that I've used over and over again in my own career. When I would go into an interview, at the end of that interview, I'd always ask, and this is usually to the hiring manager, how do you envision this project going, right? And, you know, I'd ask them something like, how does the role that you're hiring me for fit into that vision? And I would I would take the job and I would double down on making that vision a reality. And, you know, that would be my sole focus. And it worked for me most of the time. And I think that being indispensable is something that's often overlooked when people go into new jobs or when they're looking for new roles. I think you're right. I think, again, we as women, we tend to be, and I put myself in this category, which is why I'm saying I'm not necessarily against the imposter syndrome. If if faking it a little bit can give you the confidence to uh, lean forward and make a point, then I'm all for it. And I've done that many times myself where I haven't really had the confidence, but I've nonetheless forced myself to lean forward. Literally, there have been times I've pretended that I was an actress in a play because that made me somehow feel more protected. But then I leaned forward and I would make the point or I would volunteer for the assignment or I would in some way put myself out there, which if I had listened to the fear, I would not have done so. And again, all of this turned out to be, at least for me, a part of the strength the, the willingness to take a risk, the willingness to take a chance. So what's your overall philosophy about success? If you could sum that up, and what are you hoping readers glean from the lessons you've laid out in your book? The formula that I've found over the course of my life that has worked for me, and I do believe it's a formula that can work for anybody in any walk of life. And the idea is, of course, to find the professional and the personal fulfillment and satisfaction satisfaction in any number of ways that any individual might choose. But I think it comes down to three key building blocks, which are you need to chart and navigate your path. So that means you need to have a plan, but you also need to be prepared to pivot if plan A doesn't work out for whatever reason, be agile and be willing and able to go to what could be a plan B. The second thing is to be part of or to, if you're the leader, you need to inspire, hire, retain, and lead a fantastic team because everything happens nowadays in teamwork. And then the third thing is you got to get things done because if you're moving up the corporate ladder or the government ladder, obviously you're going to get selected for that next job because someone believes that you have the potential to fulfill those stretch responsibilities. So it's about the future. It's not about the past, but make no mistake about it. Every new boss is going to look to see what have you actually accomplished? Can you get things done? So building up a body of accomplishment is very, very important in whatever job you have today, because that will help you get it done for tomorrow, get that next 
good job. And um, I offer kind of a formula, regardless of what the challenge might be or the problem set that you encounter, there is a repeatable formula for attacking those problems and overcoming those challenges that I offer up in AIM High. Yeah. And and lastly, I think one of the most valuable pieces of advice is lead a full life beyond work. That's something that I don't see a lot of women investing in. Absolutely essential. And to me, that is part and parcel. That is the top strategy under what I consider to be the importance of chart and navigate your path, because you are not going to find personal fulfillment if you are all about and exclusively about work. There needs to be other facets to your life. So these facets can be anything from, you know, having a life partner and children, or if not, it's your friends and it's your parents or your siblings, or it could be hobbies of some sort. It could be volunteer work. There's no one size fits all, but if you don't have some sort of endeavor, some sort of passion, relationships that have nothing to do with work, that are just about you as a person separate from work, then I don't believe that you will successfully chart and navigate your path. Well, Deborah Lee James, thank you so, so much for joining me today. I really enjoyed reading this book and I think there's lots of really valuable lessons for myself and for anyone who reads it. And you know, your, your career and your life has been, it's a real inspiration. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. You can find information about Deborah Lee James' book, Aim High, in today's show notes. And if you found this episode helpful, please leave a five-star review on iTunes. Also, please subscribe to The Electorate on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. Lastly, please follow The Electorate on social media. We're on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and that's at Electorate. And until next time, keep up the good fight.